everyone and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining us for episode 161 and you're joined by your hosts as always, Tiara and Jack. So we're going to jump into a Q&A as per usual and this first question says, is there a limit for the thermic effect of food? Does a bodybuilder with a 4,000 calorie intake really have a 10% thermic effect of food? It's a great question. And perhaps we should define what is the thermic effect of food? I think that's a good idea. (laughs) All right. So just to clarify, when we say thermic effect of food or what you might see it written as TEF, but the thermic effect of food is essentially the amount of energy that we require to digest, absorb, metabolize, and store the nutrients in the food that we eat. So it's the amount of calories that you burn through eating food which Mm. ain't too bad in this case, because apparently if you have a 4,000 calorie intake and 10% of those calories are required to just digest and absorb, metabolize and store the food that you eat, what's that, Jack? 400 calories? Yeah, give or take. In terms of macros, I believe that's about 100 grams of carbs. Not Mm. bad. Yeah, it's... It does depend on a few factors, like, for example, some foods like protein have a higher thermic effect of food than others, such as dietary fat. And then we have, like, obviously something that's going to be higher in in fiber, potentially that's more plant matter based, will have a higher thermic effect of food compared to something that's very processed or quite refined that doesn't require as much digestive capacity to digest. Mm, Yeah, people usually quote the numbers, for example, in terms of dietary fat, you'd usually burn about one to three percent of the calories from that fat source just through the thermic effect of food. In terms of carbohydrates, it's about five to ten percent of the energy within that food. And then for protein, it's about twenty to thirty percent. And the ranges there, it really does depend on not just the macronutrient itself, but obviously what is the food source that you're getting that macronutrient from? Like For example, I would argue, and it's probably been shown in the literature too if we looked it up, but the thermic effect of food, if you ate some chicken breast or like a really tough piece of red meat, would probably be higher compared to if you just drank some EAAs. Mm. Or even trying to get out the protein from some nuts, even though it's not the best source of protein, nuts are quite notorious for the difficulty to actually extract nutrients from them due to their structure i guess yeah or if you were trying to get carbohydrates from lentils compared to carbohydrates from the sugar in your tea or Mm. even in terms of fat sources like if you were to just dip some bread into some olive oil pretty low thermic effect of food there but like the nut example if you were to eat some whole nuts i wonder if it even takes into account how you have to (laughs) digestion obviously starts in the mouth but for some foods it starts in the hands like pistachios you know how Mm. sometimes you really got to get after a pistachio or (laughs) or a walnut you got to crack that thing open and really fight for it that could burn a calorie or two Mm. wonder if they factor those things in (laughs) probably not (laughs) i don't think 10 percent is an exact number of course like Mm. it will be a range so just getting 10 percent of your current total daily intake wouldn't be an a fairly be a broad representation it wouldn't Mm. be an accurate one It's kind of just like using an online calorie calculator to find your daily maintenance calories. Like that's a bit of a shot in the dark. And I think 
10% probably is as well. So mm. the short answer is no, like it wouldn't be exactly 10%. Mm. I believe it comes from that rough guide where it's like, what comprises of the metabolism? Like how mm. is the average person burning their energy throughout the day? And, you know, they say that the large majority of it, probably over 50% comes from like your BMR and your RMR. Then a bit comes from exercise, a bit comes from meat, and then about 10% comes from the thermic effect of food. But ugh, it's just such a broad generalized assumption to assume that everyone is burning 10% of their calories through the food that they eat. And we all know that energy output through your body and your exercise and your knee and your food, it's really going to come down to the individual. It's going to be a very unique circumstance. So that infographic that I can imagine a lot of people have seen before that represents how many calories you burn each day as, and what comprises of your TDEE, which is your total daily energy expenditure, it really is just a kind of generalization and an assumption based on the average person. Yeah. Similar to nutrient requirements as well. Like there's a, that's a approximation based on the average person. Mm. And yeah, I think a few things to certainly consider, like it is definitely or could be viewed as an incentive to be consuming more whole foods because we know that whole foods will probably be a slightly higher thermic effect of food because they require more energy to digest and absorb the nutrients and someone with a more whole foods based diet so let's say someone who was purely consuming let's say chicken breast and lots of like brown rice and brown pasta just whole grain options quinoa lentils beans and then any sort of type of vegetable or fruit really in its whole form, their TEF will be a much higher percentage of their total daily caloric intake compared to someone who was consuming the same number of calories, but was consuming, let's say, like lots of white flour, like refined cereals, whey protein shakes, all of that sort of stuff. And maybe that person would have a dietary fiber intake of 10 grams per day and then the other person the first individual might have a dietary fiber intake of 50 plus grams per day mm. yeah so it certainly is an incentive to have a whole foods diet for mm. sure because if you want to have a higher thermic effect yeah absolutely but a lot of people do like to eat and a lot of people wouldn't mind if their body would just almost effortlessly burn a few calories for them based on their dietary pattern but again we say you know 10 percent, but it's give or take right give or take 10 percent, probably <laughs> yeah give or take 10 percent. but let's say someone's only consuming 2,000 calories per day 10 percent of that is only 200 calories so mm. let's say ooh, let's bump it up by a few percent we're talking about like an extra 50 100 calories a day maybe so in the grand scheme of things it's not going to be like a deal breaker whether or not you get absolutely shredded during a prep compared to the person next to you just because you made a few different food choices, but it's definitely something to keep up your sleeve. Yeah, I think definitely in a weight loss phase, I would argue that people should be making those food choices anyway for mm. the most part because they are the most satiating. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> definitely dietitians over here, definitely advocating for all your whole foods. And mm. it is really just that cherry on top to be like, hey, if you do choose to eat these certain things, you might actually burn a few more calories in the process. Mm. 
Yeah, for sure. And I, I think there'll always be those people who won't care and choose to make their continued food decisions. Mm-hmm. Fitting in their Freddo frogs, even mm-hmm. when they're only on 125 carb a day. Mm. <laughs> you do you. But anyway, <laughs> Jack, this next question, it says, how would you define a hobby builder? Yeah, I, I think we've had this as a reoccurring question quite a lot. So it's good that we're finally getting around to answering it. Are you sure we haven't touched on this before? Uh, I don't believe that we've ever touched on hobby builders. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah, I think we started using this term a few years ago. Mm. I certainly got it from Dean McKillop, who's also a coach mm. or an Australian-based coach as well. Well, not Australia at the moment. I think they're in Portugal. Yeah. And I think it doesn't have a proper definition. It might be in the Urban Dictionary, but <laughs> I just see it as someone who doesn't bodybuild professionally for their sole income. Mm. So it might be someone who really enjoys bodybuilding and does it as a hobby, or it might be someone such as ourselves who our primary passion and form of revenue is coaching and dietetics and being a dietitian, but we're also bodybuilders at the same time. So do I consider myself a hobby builder? Yes, but I also consider myself a bodybuilder as well. Like I wouldn't go around telling people I'm a hobby builder, mm. not a bodybuilder. Yeah, we're definitely <laughs> not called the hobby building dietitians. <laughs> what would that be? THB? Mm. HBV. <laughs> oh my gosh, we're going to have to change the number plate on the chimney. <laughs> no, this ain't just a hobby. But it's interesting because at, for a hobby builder, everyone has like a slightly different definition. Someone might define themselves as a hobby builder if they share the same lifestyle characteristics and identity traits as a bodybuilder, but they just choose to not actually step on stage and compete. But on the other hand, someone, for example, Dean McKillop, he usually identifies as a hobby builder, but Dean still steps on stage and he competes, but he doesn't compete at that professional level because he doesn't have his pro status. So I think it's kind of up for interpretation. Yeah, certainly it's there's no objective criteria for if you tick six out of these seven boxes, you're a hobby mm-hmm. builder. So I think it's up to the individual what they decide to identify with. Mm. I think the main thing, though, is that you just live the lifestyle of a bodybuilder. You train regularly, you know, you're very invested in what you eat and you take care of your body. You're quite routine based. You're quite heavily invested in the sport. You follow the sport. So I guess you could say in a sense that you do identify as a bodybuilder, but you treat it as a hobby. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's a fair definition. But would you say that If someone would identify as a hobby builder instead of a bodybuilder, do you think they might degree a higher level of flexibility into their lifestyle, Jack, than someone who purely just identifies as a bodybuilder? I I think that's a question for the sake of making questions. I think it really (laughs) just depends on the person. Depends on the time of the year, mm. right? <laughs> if you want to justify something, you're like, oh no, I'm, I'm just a hobby builder, right? But mm. then other times when you're like head down super strict, you're like, I'm a bodybuilder. Yeah, it's like someone saying, oh, am I a runner or am I a jogger? Mm. Yes, depends, uh, you know, if you're preparing for a race or not, right? Mm. <laughs> or if you're just like justifying why you're eating a big stack of pancakes. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, I think we've explained hobby builder. What's the next question? So this next one, it says, 
Does protein absorption efficiency decline over time? What are the tips to overcome this? Yeah, so from my knowledge, your ability to absorb protein and translate it into protein synthesis, so MPS, uh, does decline slowly as you get older. And that is also combined with undergoing some sarcopenia as you get older as well, which is a ongoing degeneration of your muscle, essentially, uh, which is why resistance training should be conducted by everyone as they get older, not just people who want to look aesthetic or people who want to have big muscles or want to even just lift heavy things, but everyone should prevent that muscle degeneration to improve their longevity as they get older. Mm, absolutely, because if you can invest the decades of your youth before you reach that like middle age to older age in really maximizing hypertrophy, which is the growth of muscle fibers, then when you then pass middle age and older age, you will naturally experience atrophy, which is the loss of skeletal muscle mass, which like you said, it's defined as, you, you pronounce it in an Australian accent. Well, I just pronounce it how it's spelled. <laughs> but I say sacropenia. Mm. <laughs> but yours is sacro. Sarcopenia. Sarcopenia. So we've got some Australian listeners. I mean, I know we've got some North American listeners. So it depends on how your lecture pronounces it. <laughs> mm. Well, it is spelled S-A-R-C-O. Sarco. Mm-hmm. Sacro. Mm-hmm. Either way, the degenerative loss of muscle mass. But we know that there are two primary ways to stimulate MPS, which is muscle protein synthesis. And that is resistance training. So lifting some weight and putting yourself under load, hopefully strategically, and also consuming an adequate protein intake. But particularly at each mealtime, actually trying to aim for a relatively large bolus of protein from a high quality source, for example, an animal source, so that you are getting an adequate amount of essential amino acids and particularly leucine. So when you see this guideline for protein intake of, oh, you can go anywhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, it is argued and there now is more literature to show that as you age, and you really want to hold on to your muscle mass or you want to try to decrease the degree of sacropenia, (laughs) then you should probably consider having some larger protein servings at every single meal and probably going closer to like 2.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. And every single time you eat, hopefully like four times per day, you're actually trying to get like around 40 to 50 grams of an animal source in that meal. So what that might look like is anywhere between 130 to 140 grams of cooked chicken or cooked red meat. So it's not even that large of a portion size, like 130 grams of cooked chicken. I still look at that like it's a little bit pathetic. Like, is that it? (laughs) Yeah, it's about probably half the size of your most people's Mm. palms. Yeah, and in terms of whey protein, maybe close to like 50 grams of whey protein Mm. sort of thing. It's, I think the numbers sound more overwhelming than the actual serving size of food. Yeah, I think you quoted definitely on the upper end of protein because Mm. we got to remember that the, for the average person who doesn't really, who aren't invested in bodybuilding or Mm. muscle gain, like 
the recommendations for protein is like 0.8 grams per kilo. Mm, the RDI, but that's just ridiculously yeah, so, low. But we're talking about like what the the average person who doesn't mm. lift. So, But this question is also related to how can I prevent losing my muscle mass? Mm. No, I'm going, yeah, I'm, I'm still going on from that point. So I think definitely two and a half grams per kilo is, is very, very high mm. still. And even for someone who is aging, let's say 60 and above, mm. Um, so I, I would say even like quoting those usual standard, fairly standard guidelines of like 1.6 to 2.4. Mm. And so like 2.4 to 2.5 would definitely be on the higher end. Mm. I think anything over two grams per kilo is, is still very sufficient, mm. even for people who are undergoing sarcopenia. Yeah. I just think, I think one of the main reasons you might want to consider going a little bit higher and there's, there's absolutely no dangers in that is simply so that you can really maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis and get an adequate amount of leucine at each meal. Cause you need anywhere between like two to three grams of leucine within a meal to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And to get that amount of leucine, you will need to eat close to probably 30 to 40 grams at least from an animal source at that meal, plus all the trace proteins that you're getting through your other servings of protein. And if you want to be stimulating that at least four times per day, so you're getting those little boosts in MPS throughout the day, then you might actually just end up at the end of the day close to around 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight per day in that range. Yeah. I think it also depends on someone's body weight Mm. as well. Yeah. So either way, eat your protein, try to get it from HBV sources. But also the big thing is like, you got to resistance train. Like that's, that's one of the best ways to stimulate muscle protein synthesis is to stimulate it through your exercise and through your training and what you're actually doing. And it's one of the best ways to really retain your muscle as well. Yeah. You can eat all the protein in the world, but if you don't actually use your muscles through exercise then Mm -hmm. you're not going to grow or retain what you have Mm -hmm. it's kind of like you're sending off a little uh, alarm signal in certain spots of your body like directing the protein to that spot like hey come here repair this grow this maintain this but you you have to provide that stimulus Mm. cool well hopefully that answers your question all right jack this next one it asks does eating time matter when it comes to weight loss or weight gain? Yeah, so I think this is definitely a very repeated question in the fitness industry. So for example, like oh, carbs in the evening, will it influence my fat loss or will it make me gain fat or more fat? All of that sort of stuff. And I think many listeners are probably maybe even tempted to skip this question because like they already know what answer we're going to give. We're going to say that the, the timing at which you eat food doesn't matter for fat loss. Mm. But I guess we're here to flesh it out a little bit more today and say that for a number of reasons, it, it does matter what time you eat. And it depends how nuanced you want to get. So mm. if you are in a decent calorie deficit, then sure, regardless of when you eat, you are still going to lose fat regardless. Like that's, that's what a calorie deficit is. Mm. But can it be optimized depending on... Your training, can it be optimized depending on maximizing NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis, even things like the thermic effect of food? Yes, it can be optimized. So, mm, Well, I think that some people have probably seen that pyramid where it talks about what's the most important at the bottom of the pyramid and what's the least important. And it goes your energy intake and your energy balance 
then your macronutrient distribution and food choices as well. Then it goes meal timing. And then the very tip top, then you got some supplements. (laughs) But it goes to show that if there's a hierarchy, the meal timing isn't nearly as important as are you actually in a calorie deficit or in a surplus? Because this question did say weight loss or weight gain. What food are you actually eating and what is the macronutrient composition of that food? But once you got all those ducks in a row, then yes, you could certainly consider the nuances of meal timing. And overall, there is quite a large body of literature now showing that front-loading more of your calories during the earlier parts of the day is generally more favorable for overall health, for increasing your energy output through the day. Also, actually, there is some literature to show that there's actually a higher thermic effect of food during the meals that you eat in the earlier hours of the day compared to biological night. Gastric emptying rates are actually higher in the morning compared to the evening. We have higher insulin sensitivity, so you have better blood glucose control. At nighttime, it's a bit hazy. Like you want to find a perfect balance with some carb intake at night. Because if you go absolutely zero carbs and you're in a severe energy deficit, there is a pretty good chance that you will have some crummy night sleeps and you might wake up a little bit hypo and yeah, you just don't sleep very well through the night. That's not optimal. But at the same time, if you backload all of your carbs and then you give yourself this huge blood glucose level spike right before you fall asleep, then that's not really good for sleep either. So it's quite individual with how many carbs you want in that final evening meal of the day. But the general recommendation that I give is try to have your meals in terms of carbohydrate and calorie content taper down throughout the day. So they are more biased at breakfast and lunch, and then they slowly taper down to dinner. Mm. Yeah, I think there are a few reasons as to why I would recommend people going against that. Like, Number one is compliance. So if you are someone who struggles with compliancy during a weight loss phase, so you might not be a bodybuilder then, or you might not be actively bodybuilding in a competition, then do what's gonna make it easiest for you. So Mm -hmm. if that means backloading a lot of your food towards the evening, then go for it, as long as there aren't any other like physiological or or mental ramifications Mm -hmm. of that. Uh, The other alternative as well is if you are someone who does train in the morning, then it potentially does make sense to backload a few more carbohydrates towards the end of the day. Like I'm, for example, even doing that today. So I've got legs tomorrow. I usually train at around 8.45, 9 a.m. And I'm only on 200 carb today, which is a very, very, very small amount yeah, for me. So do understand this is a very special circumstance for Jack Radford Smith. <laughs> mm, it is. So I've actually eaten, I think it was like 37 grams of carbs up until my third meal. My third meal was at uh, around like 3.30 p.m. Mm. And then I've got like the remainder, approximately 150 uh, across two meals. So Mm -hmm. that's the main reason why I did that. And I can guarantee you like the earlier half of today, I was a bit more sluggish. I wasn't as as light on my feet, so to speak. I'm pretty sure I heard you uh, playing that song, I will survive. No, not I. I will survive. You did. You're still here podcasting. Mm. Yeah, I don't think you'll ever catch me playing that song there. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, too late. Unless it was on the radio. 
No, but uh, it's definitely a special circumstance given that you're in quite an aggressive mini cut right mm. now. Um, but in most cases, like when you are in an energy surplus, like you still have carbohydrates in the final meal of the day because you're eating upwards of 600 grams per mm. day. So it's silly if you were like, yeah, only 10 grams of carbs at dinner. That's very silly. But it would it be your lowest carb meal out of the others? Yes, it would be. Mm. At that point, because my glycogen stores are always fairly saturated, mm. then I'll keep yeah my carbs towards the evening quite or on the lower end compared to my other meals. And I would say the same thing for, for most people in a surplus as well. Like have some carbs in the evening, but it doesn't need to be your most carb-heavy meal, even if you do train mm. in the morning because... That's kind of the definition of a surplus and resistance training, unless you are doing other forms of activity, like maybe running or more cardiovascular intense exercise, like even CrossFit. If you're just resistance training, then it doesn't expend a huge amount of, of glycogen anyway. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like once again, like as long as you've got your energy balance, like your food sources and your macronutrient ratios, all of those things ticked off, then you can start to consider these more nuances. But I really actually like how you made the point of adherence and compliance, like what is going to work the best for your circumstance? Because let's say that you live in, in a family environment, which a lot of people do, a lot of people have families and people are out during the day doing their own thing. And having a family dinner at night is usually the one time of the day everyone can get together, they can share a meal together, they can talk about their days. It's really nice. And that's not necessarily something that a lot of people want to miss out on. So if you know that, okay, well, I have a nice family dinner each night and I don't want to just eat a few little things of green beans, you know, and a tiny sliver of chicken sort of thing. You're like, I know realistically I am going to be having quite a few hundred calories at dinner. Then you wouldn't be like, oh, but it's, it's really important to still eat a lot of food in the earlier hours of the day. Cause then if you still had a big breakfast and a big lunch, then it's unlikely you're still going to be in an energy deficit given most people's energy expenditure. So that's definitely something to take into account. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I think often when people do eat a lot in the evening, it's for, I think, two or three reasons. And like reason number one, just they're stuck in that routine and they struggle to get out of it because when you eat a lot in the evening, you wake up not very hungry. Mm -hmm. And then as a result, you choose not to eat very much. And then before you know it, it's the afternoon, evening again, and you have to eat a lot of food again. Mm -hmm. Another thing is perhaps they might make a poorer food choice for lunch because if they wake up still quite satiated and they're like, ugh, I don't even really want breakfast, I'm not hungry. And if you're not that food focused or hungry, you're probably not thinking about the next meal either. So you're like, oh, I'll just figure out what I'm gonna have for lunch later. Then when hunger finally hits, then you might be unprepared. Mm, for sure. And I think, other people see it as that reward as well at the end of the day. So they they starve themselves, essentially. They undergo a lot of hunger in the earlier portion of the day just to overindulge or indulge in the, in the evening time, which I would argue it's not, you're not doing your body a favor. You're not fueling your first half of the day well, especially when, cause, and I can speak out of experience here and maybe you can as well, like, you end the end the days just end up going by with you starving during the day and all you think about is food mm. all you want to do is is get home and eat or you just want to rush through your session in the afternoon to just get home and eat and that's no no one wants to live that way like mm. that's just you thinking about food 
at all times or three quarters of the day. Yeah, you never realize how spectacular life can be until you aren't food focused and mm. when you can actually give your cognition and energy and attention to other areas of life. It's very freeing. It feels really freaking nice. But also, I totally understand that like at night, like it's it's nice, it's comforting to eat a lot of food or at least just come home to a, a nice, warm, decent, satiating meal because, you know, the hustle and bustle and busyness of a day, especially if you're out working, like sometimes people, they, they might even just make that trade off of their like, oh, like during the day, I don't necessarily want to just be eating out of Tupperware or, you know, reheating things up at my work or having a meal while I'm like having a conversations with a bunch of other people and I can't really actually mindfully enjoy it. So I'd rather just save a lot of those calories for when I'm at home at night, I've had a shower, things are quiet and peaceful and I can sit down at my table, not eat out of plastic and actually eat off a plate and just really enjoy this. So mm. I get that too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that's probably our final question for the day, but we actually did receive a nice little thing in the question box. It said, not a question, but I found your podcast last week and I've been binge listening, have learned so much. Mm, we don't often reshare these. Like I <laughs> might sound as if I'm making this up, but we're lucky to get quite a few of those messages yeah. probably each time we put out a question mm. poll. So I appreciate it so much. Even mm. in the DMs, people still finding this podcast, even though we started it over three and a half years ago, they're like, just found the podcast starting from episode one. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> go up to like at least episode in the hundreds. You know mm. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, we must be at how many total episodes? I think we must be close to 250. Yeah, right? around there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's been a while, but you know, consistency pays off every week for about... Mm three and a half years yeah but yeah it's um it's really nice but yes I, I always think back to like episode one I haven't even gone back and listened through <laughs> through the archives because we've just we have changed so much I think with anything you you get better at it as you keep practicing and finding your groove because at least I remember when we used to receive questions we were still in uni mm. and I felt obliged to answer podcast questions as if I was answering an exam question. Like, I'm like, I'm going to tell you everything I know. Mm. And it would just be a huge barf of information. But I, I really like our podcast now because I feel like like we have a lot more experience now. We are a lot more thoughtful with our answers. We can just have more of a discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think now it's we don't go super in depth because that's not going to be useful for the average person. Mm. We're not, the goal of this isn't to show off our knowledge or to undergo the nutrition science. It's more so what's going to be practically applicable for most people and also sharing our journey as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even though we're both nerds at heart, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's a time and a place and you definitely learn that, <laughs> but we hope that you're still enjoying those first few episodes. <laughs> mm. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't even matter what order people listen to the Q and A's. I, I, if we could somehow put out a public service announcement that people should start from, from the most recent. <laughs> it's cool. Like people even still go back and listen to my 2020 prep series or mm. our road to 2021 series. Like yeah. it's neat. Well, sorry if you find any spoilers on the gram. 
<laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's a lot of fun. But what I just love about this podcast is that obviously we we have a very good amount of episodes now, somewhat in our library. So we we just have quite quite a good resume of audio tracks. Mm. A lot, many many hours. Yes, take your pick. But Jack, final question we always end on is once one thing that you learned this week. Well, I won't go into specifics, but Tiara and I are looking to delve into the property market. And let's just say like, we've learned a lot about, as you do, when you dive into there for the first time, home loans, what does buying your first property involve, what to look for, where to buy, all of those little things that you need to consider rather Mm -hmm. than just the house itself. How do you know when you're being played by a real estate agent? (laughs) Mm, Yeah. So yeah, just learned a lot about that. As I, yeah, nothing really specific to say, just it's all very new and uh, we're, we're getting better at it. Yeah, and uh, hopefully it's not too long until we're no longer living in this rental. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think it'll be definitely within the next year. Yeah. I'd, uh, I see us being in a different place. Yeah, very excited. Good things to come. Mm. What about you? Ooh, okay, so this is a little different. But today, I actually learned about a new female hormonal contraceptive, and it's called Depo Provera. And it is essentially a shot that you get put into your butt cheek every single three months, and it releases a synthetic form of progesterone called progestin, which essentially can stop you from ovulating and it stops you from getting pregnant. It just forms like a mucus lining in your cervix so that sperm can't get in there and uh, try to do its thing. Do their thing, you know? Like you may be getting a shot in your butt cheek. You're still natty, but hey, at least you ain't preggers, right? But this is just something that I learned that now you can actually be injected with hormonal contraceptive. And the reason why I just thought this was interesting because in the past, I've used a form of contraception called the Implanon, or some people refer to it as the bar. And it's this little bar that goes on the inside of your arm, usually your non-dominant arm, like near your bicep. It lasts for about three years, but it has a very slow release of progestin, which is, again, that synthetic form of progesterone. And it just stops you from getting pregnant, stops a lot of people from having their periods, and so on. But now I learned today that you can get the shot, but you have to get it every three months rather than having the Implanon, which will last you about three years. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm, yeah, I obviously had no idea about it either. Mm, yeah, so there you go. Something new. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's what the question asked Jack the is end. very intrigued by this. He's like, a female's laying down on tables getting shots up their butt. But hey, again. Shots in their butt, not up the <laughs> Not up the butt, in the cheek. <laughs> anyway, let's wrap this one up. So guys, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, And we'll catch you next week.